If you all want to turn to Galatians 2, chapter 2, we'll read the first 10 verses in Galatians 2. And the title is Standing for the Truth of the Gospel. Standing for the Truth of the Gospel. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Paul writes, And after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom that we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they are, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and nay to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. One of the greatest trials the apostle Paul faced his entire Christian life was this. So he'd go, he'd plant a church by preaching the truth of the gospel. God would move. People would be saved. They'd be spirit-filled. Healings and deliverances would take place only to have, right after he left, a group of Judaizers come behind and try to totally corrupt the gospel and the people. And that's what they would do. So the way they would do it, his character would be maligned, his credentials discredited, his motives were questioned, and the truth was twisted. And it sounds to me like he was running for the Supreme Court. He never defended his personal attributes. He admitted that he didn't look like much, his speech wasn't eloquent or clever, and that he was the chief of sinners. But when it came to defending the truth of the gospel and the fact that he had the task assigned him to preaching it, he wouldn't only defend it, but as we saw last time, he pronounced a curse on man or angel who attempted to change it. If you would, just back in chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, I marvel... He can't believe that the Galatians, you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. In other words, there is not a different gospel out there anywhere. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The curse is what happened to Jericho utterly destroyed by God. That's what that word means. And as we have said before, he's going to say, so I now say it again. If you didn't get it the first time, here it comes again. He says, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now, that's pretty strong language because whether you realize it or not, I mean, Paul was a very meek man. He was a gentle, meek man to be around him. He's not writing this in this way like he wants to be that way or that that was the way he would carry himself. But, but he's going to come on strong when he needs to, and that's what he's doing. He's not messing around here. So we looked last week at this chapter 1. Paul makes a defense that the good news he preached wasn't his idea at all. The fact that he was the one preaching it wasn't his idea either. It was all divinely ordained. Divinely ordained. So here's the, the point we need to get out of that. I, I made it last week, is if we mess with the gospel... We disregard the gospel, take it lightly, the gospel that we've heard. We're not messing with a mere man or a mere man's message, but the message given by God Almighty. I've had people actually tell me, you know, well, Paul, that's just Paul. That's just his opinion on different subjects. Like he's just given his opinion on things and act like they can just brush it off. Well, I'll listen to what Jesus says, but Paul, eh. Now, I don't think that's so much a problem in here, but this whole discussion. 
distorting or twisting the gospel. It happens all the time by ministers today. And the sad fact is people stand in line to hear it and exercise no discernment at all. Because we live in a culture now that doesn't know how to properly reason through things. Everything in our culture is based on emotion. How does it make you feel? And I'm talking men shouldn't be like that. Our men are like that. Men think like women. That's no put down on women. Women are made to be emotional. It says Eve was first deceived, not Adam. That's what it says. I'm not putting down women. My wife is smart. I ask her opinion on a lot of things. I don't mean it that way. But I'm saying men of all people should be reasoning and able to see through. It said Adam wasn't deceived. They should be able to see through all this emotion or whatever and get to the heart of what's really being said here. That's not the kind of society we're in. And people are being deluded by false gospels. Paul warned us that this would happen. He said in 1 Timothy 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines or teachings of demons. And that's really what he's upset with these Galatians about. Because he tells them over in chapter 3, verse 1, we'll get there eventually, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Who's cast a spell over you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? He's saying, who's put this spell on you that you saw clearly? He'd say it's placarded. It's like he was proclaimed and he, it was obvious Jesus Christ crucified. You clearly saw it. And now all of a sudden, it's like someone's put a spell on you, some demonic spirit. And how do those demonic spirits manifest? They come in the form of some caring, eloquent preacher. Female or male. They have this certain way of coming across. They get you sucked in and they're distorting the truth. And you got to see through all that. That's what happens. So anyways, Paul defends his calling and his apostleship. He says they both, what my idea, came directly from God. And he defends the fact that he's an apostle in the first few verses of chapter 1. You know, he basically says, no man appointed me to be an apostle. I didn't decide to go out and get, like people will do, apostolic business cards that I can hand up and appoint myself. He says, no, it was God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who was risen from the dead that appeared to me. That's how I got my appointment. Now, these other guys that are talking to you and trying to twist the gospel, these false brethren, these Judaizers, they can't say that. So look what he says here in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, and here's, he explains, not for men, nor through man, but here is why I'm an apostle, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's what he says. And then from verse 11 through the rest of the chapter, he defends the message that he preaches. Look what he says there in verses 11 and 12. He says, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel, the good news which was preached by me, it's not according to man. So my apostleship wasn't and neither is my message. He says in verse 12, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through revelation of Jesus Christ. It was a divine revelation given him. So he's saying, I didn't go up on a mountain somewhere, cross my legs, hold my fingers like this and say, Om a hundred times until some revelation came. Because I'll tell you, I did that once when I was a teenager. I was looking for truth. He had this book on Chinese meditation. I'm reading the first few pages. I thought, I'll try that. Went in my sister's room, crossed my legs, put my hands like that, said, om, om, om. And I mean, I was really seriously doing it. Next thing you know, I had a spirit come on me, scared me to death. I didn't know anything about demons or spirits. That was the last time I did that. That didn't mean the spirit left. The spirit left when I got saved, heard the truth of deliverance, and cast it out. But you don't want to mess with that stuff. And that's not how Paul got his revelation. You know, he didn't have epileptic seizures. He didn't fall 10 stories from a building on his head and all of a sudden have these revelations. No, it came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells the Galatians, he says, you don't believe me when I say that? Look at verses 13 to 14. He's saying there, look, my goal was to destroy the churches, not to build it up. Y'all can check that out easy enough. Everyone knows about me, how I was in the past. And then in verses 15 to 17, he said, the reason my life and my mind was changed is because God did it supernaturally. In fact, he planned it before I was born 
And he met me one day on that appointed time and that appointed road on the way to Damascus, called me by his grace and gave me this revelation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's when I got my call. That's when I got my mission to the Gentiles. And that's when I got my message. It all came from God. Nothing I dreamed up. He wasn't looking for it. And let me ask you, honestly, was this message that you heard, that we hear, that we've been privileged to hear, was this something you were looking for? I mean, honestly, I wasn't looking for it at all. It wasn't like I had this idea where I'm just wondering, is there a group out there somewhere that believes in speaking in tongues, divine healing, non-resist, that really believes the Bible? I, I didn't know anybody. like I wasn't looking for it. And it's like, God, it found me. Honestly, it did. It found me. When I got saved, it wasn't in my thinking at all that, you know, when you do this, when you take this step to give your life to the Lord Jesus, you're going to have to trust Him for healing. You're going to have to trust Him with your life. You're going to have to... I didn't know anything about any of that. All I knew is I was a sinner going to hell, and His blood was my only hope. And I'm like, Lord, I'll give my life to you. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And lo and behold, here comes this message. It's like, wow, you're asking me to do that? (laughs) Praise God. But look, I wasn't looking for it. You weren't looking for it. Israel wasn't looking for it. Moses, he wasn't looking for it, was he? He's minding his own business, tending sheep. Now all of a sudden there's a burning bush. Like, what in the world is this? And all of a sudden, bam, there's the Lord. This is what you're going to do, Moses. And here's the message you're going to preach. And here's the people you're going to lead. And little did he know. Jeremiah wasn't looking for it. God said, I'm going to give you a message that nobody's going to want to hear. I called you from a child to do this, and I will give you the strength and the strong forehead to preach it to them, because that's what it's going to take. You know, but Israel wasn't looking for it. I wasn't looking for it. But do we look at this message we received as God's love and grace to give it to us? Because, you know, Israel, they're all excited when they hear this. Oh, we're getting out of here. They get out of Egypt. We're out of this bondage. And they're singing the song on the banks of the Red Sea, aren't they, when they see Pharaoh. But you know what? It wasn't long until all of a sudden that message wasn't so popular with them anymore, was it? They weren't so glad to have received it. In fact, they're thinking, I wish we could just go back to the way things were. I don't like this walking with God, trusting God. It's hard. Is that where we're at? Maybe we aren't. Praise God if we're not. I mean, I'm not. (laughs) I still look at it as a privilege. I really do. And I'm glad because I doubt if I'd be standing here today, I would be six feet under the path I was on and the road I was taking at the time I got saved. It was not good. The last thing Paul does here, he answers these charge that this message wasn't his and they're accusing him of getting it from the other apostles. Well, he says, you know, after I received the gospel that the Lord gave me, it was three years. It took me three years to where I finally got around and going to see Peter. And then when I saw him, it wasn't like I camped out and he's giving me all this revelation and teaching. It was just for two weeks. We got acquainted with each other. And I also saw James, the Lord's brother. So he's telling the Galatians he didn't hang around Jerusalem to get his message. He's saying the people in Judea, I was there such a short period of time. They don't even know what I look like. They didn't. They just know they had heard that this one that had been persecuting them, killing them, throwing them into prison is now preaching the gospel. That's all they knew about Paul. That's that's what the point he's making there. He's saying the gospel that I preach, he's telling them it has nothing to do with man, nothing to do with man's philosophy, man's ideas. You know, when we sit here today in this country where we're relatively not persecuted, no big problem, that is just something we kind of take for granted. But, you know, when you start getting people pressing you on, why do you believe this? Do you know this is certain? You sure all this stuff you're saying works? You'll start finding out whether you really think this was a direct revelation of God. Because if you don't, you'll get talked out of it. It'll be an easier path to get talked out of it. But Paul says, uh-uh, I got it from heaven. It came from heaven to me, and I'm instructed to give it to you. And he, he said so much so Y'all don't like what I preach. He's telling them, that's, that's fine. He goes, but woe is me. I don't have a choice. He says, you might not want to listen. And he says, a lot of you won't because you got itching ears. But he says, woe is me if I don't preach it. And if I don't preach it the way he gave it to me. That's what he said. Woe is me. I've got to. So he's saying it came from heaven to me, to you. And here's why he doesn't even want to change it. I don't think Paul wanted to change it. Because he says in Romans, it's the power of God. And this message and only this message is the grace of God. It's true freedom. It's true life. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other life but through him. All the rest of it's false. And so that's what he preached. And he's saying, don't let anybody talk you out of it, people. Because they talk you out of it, you may find that you've missed the grace of God and heaven too. And that's a word to us. We should hold fast to what we've been taught. It's, it's just too much being let go. And we're heading right back into what we came out of and acting like that that's the way it should be. It's not the way it should be. I was glad to be delivered out of the denomination I came out of. Roman Catholicism, thoroughly glad. It was dead, no life. It was sending me to hell. They'd pray me into heaven, but I wouldn't have been there if I'd have stayed in that system. Mm-mm. Now, I'm not saying there's not a Catholic that's not going to heaven, but I wouldn't give most of them a whole great chance. So what is this gospel? I went through this before, but I really want to repeat it again because I'm not naive enough to think everybody was listening. Everybody went back and listened to my tape three times. Ah, no better than that. But I'd like to go through again, what is the good news that Paul, Jesus, Peter, and the other apostles proclaimed? And first thing is, there is a living God. Acts 14, 15, Paul preached this in Galatia. He says, we bring you good news, the gospel, that you should turn from vain things to the living God. That was the good news. There was a living God, not these dead idols. The second thing is that God reigns, Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon, we sing this song, the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And that is good news, isn't it? It really is. The other thing is, the good news is that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus himself went preaching in Mark 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Or believe in the good news. That's what Jesus himself preached. The good news also is that the king has come and this king is our savior. Luke 2, the angels appeared said to the shepherds, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people for there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And all the people said, amen. That is great news of good joy. And that savior that was born to be our king had to die for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is all the gospel. This is all what the good news is. Not just part of it. This is what it is. The promise of the Holy Spirit is a major part of the good news. I mean, that was what they were looking forward to from Old Testament times on when God's spirit would be poured out. That's Old Testament prophecies pointing to that. That's when this life comes. In Acts 2, they're convicted by Peter's sermon about that they crucified the Lord and he is risen from the dead and poured out his Holy Spirit. And they say, men and brethren, they're asking the apostles, the people, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that was just for back then, wasn't it? (laughs) For his promises unto you and to your children and to us as many as are afar off, right? And evidence is always speaking in tongues. We'll talk about that. But Anywhere also that you see the gospel preached in the book of Acts, you just don't see people having their sins forgiven. Is that the only message that is preached all through the book of Acts? They say, well, they went and preached your sins can be forgiven, and that's it. Where do you read that? It's not that that's not true, but the gospel that they preach is that the kingdom of God has come. I mean, we could make a whole study on that, and that includes forgiveness. Oh, yeah, that's part of the message for sure. I'm not downplaying that at all. But that wasn't just the message, was it? That wasn't the gospel they preached through the book of Acts. It was also that there was healing, deliverance, joy, the Holy Spirit, fellowship, love. I'm saying all of that. The kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom of God is, right? And that's what they preached. Jesus said in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. So look, 
something happened to this lady that's been before the Senate years ago. That's what the gospel will do. It will heal the brokenhearted. God, I take care of that. I told my wife, I said, you think Mary Magdalene that had seven demons cast out of her and Rahab the harlot, you think she didn't have a bad past and all that other? You think God couldn't take care of healing those people in the past they had? That's what the gospel is for, though, isn't it? And that's what Jesus said. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. You've been abused. That's what the gospel will do, not leave you that way. Heal the brokenhearted. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus said that. That's the good news. He says, then he closed the book and said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So as I said last week, the good news is God is living. He's alive. He reigns. He's our Lord. Our Lord is our Savior. He's died for our sins, risen from the dead, promised the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, provided healing, deliverance, promised to meet all of our needs, and not least, power over sin. That is the gospel. To me, that's not just good news. That is great news. Well, it is good news, but it's great news. Supernatural freedom. And like I said, we look at the news as little as I can, but that is the answer to this country's problems. The only answer, isn't it? The gospel, this racial hatred, the gospel is the answer to that. The gospel is the answer to where my pastor and my church up there used to be part of the Black Panthers and told me that people like me, when I came into school, they'd be waiting and they'd, they'd jump me and kick the snot out of me. I'm thinking, you would. And he would have. But yet the gospel brings us together to where I'd go to his house and pray all night with him and have meals over there. And I had a, a black roommate, my, my roommate when I was up there, was, and we'd play checkers and pray and listen to tapes. We wouldn't have done that before, but that, you want racial reconciliation? There it is. Because just, he's just another guy, you know. He's not any black and white. We had people from all over the world in our little church up there. And that's the way it works in these sexual perversions, which is rampant in this country. The gospel and only the gospel is going to set people free from those lusts. And the power of the Holy Spirit, the health care crisis and everything in between. The cross is the answer, the good news. But who has believed our report is what they would say. So Paul's defending the gospel he preached. And the, the Judaizers are saying, oh, this gospel you preach, it's of your own making. And so in chapter 1, we just talked about, he claims it didn't come from Jerusalem and the other apostles. The Lord Jesus gave it to him directly. Now we're moving into chapter 2, and he's making the case that even though he didn't get it from the apostles in Jerusalem, it's not a different gospel than theirs. So he's saying, no, I got my gospel directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, but the gospel he gave me and the gospel he gave them, it's not a different gospel. There's not Paul's gospel and Peter's gospel and James's gospel and John's gospel. He's going to demonstrate here there is only one gospel and there's only one gospel today. There's not 14 gospels out there. Now, I would say some gospels are incomplete. And that's why we had developing, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the full gospel. Because everybody's not going to include healing and speaking in tongues and deliverance as part of their gospel. Now that doesn't mean they're necessarily preaching a false gospel. They're preaching to me an incomplete gospel. And we, thank God, have a full gospel. And I don't want to give any of my full gospel up. <laughs> I'm not negotiating that. There's no negotiations on that. There's only one gospel, the full gospel as far as I'm concerned. But look in verse 1 in chapter 2, and look what Paul writes there. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. So he connects that with the previous chapter with the then. So this is his second visit to Jerusalem. Three years after his conversion, this he's saying was his second visit, 14 years after his conversion. And there's two important things I want to notice about this visit here in verse 1. And the first thing is his companions, Barnabas and Titus, are the people that he brought with him, and both are significant. Because Barnabas would have been with Paul on his first missionary journey when he evangelized these very people. So they would have known Barnabas. They would have known his character. They would have known his love for them. But Titus, 
This guy was a controversial companion that was coming with Paul. Barnabas was a Jew, but Titus was a Greek, a Gentile. Not only that, he was an uncircumcised Gentile, just like the Galatians. The second thing you have to notice is his gospel. So it says that in verse 2. It says in verse 2, And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I had run in vain. He goes up there and presents the gospel that he had been preaching among the Gentiles to the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, why did he go there? Why did he go to Jerusalem? Was he invited to go to Jerusalem? Did he just have this hankering to see the temple, to be back in the temple again? Because he says what? He says, I went up by revelation. In other words, he's telling them, God sent me. God told me to go there. Now, he didn't say this directly, but this is probably referring to the incident Back in Acts chapter 11, when Agabus, a prophet who came from Jerusalem, went to Antioch and it said he was showed in the spirit that there was going to be a famine throughout the whole world. So the disciples in Antioch determined to send relief to the people in Judea because they were doing pretty well. They were prospering to people in Antioch. The people in Jerusalem weren't doing well at all. They were very poor, those Christians there. So they're going to send this gift, this love offering that they came. It says in Acts 11, they decided to send it by Paul and Barnabas. Somehow, whether Agabus directly told him, however it was, I think that that is why they sent them. That's why he went. That was his main purpose. But while he's there, he's going to share the gospel message that he's been sharing. He says privately to those of reputation. Four times talks about those that seem to be somebody, those that are of reputation. And we know who he's talking about. If you look down in chapter 2 and verse 9, he tells us. And he says, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seem to be pillars. That's the fourth and last time he, he refers to them that way. But there he lets the cat out of the bag. That's who he's been talking about. Those three guys. And they seem to be pillars. Now, he's not putting them down. He's not saying they aren't and they're not apostles and they're not to be respected. He's just saying these Judaizers are giving them so much credit and they're, they're putting them above me. And Paul's like, God doesn't show any favoritism to people. We need to respect the office and give them the honor that's due them. But they're just men because we're going to look at next time he gets all over Peter. If Peter's the Pope, he was a bad first Pope because he wasn't infallible, was he? He got in trouble. Had Paul getting on his case. So Paul comes to Jerusalem, and when he comes, he's got a Gentile convert with him and a Gentile gospel. And the question here is, what will the outcome be? He doesn't want to make this a public debate. Paul doesn't, so he meets privately. Now, the reason he's doing that, it's not because he's doubting the message he has, the gospel he's preaching. He knows he's got it from God, and he's not seeking their approval either. He's not meeting with them privately. Hey, guys, I just want to make sure I got this right. Can you let me know? He's not seeking their approval from Peter, James, and John. And so why does he say there at the end of verse 2 that we read, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain? Like I said, it's not that he's doubting his message, but here's what he knows. He knows if the gospel he preaches is contradicted by the apostles, or if they hear what he's preaching and they start sending out letters to all these churches that he's started, that his gospel is false. He's saying everything up to that point that I've done will be destroyed. It's a practical matter. He's not seeking their approval, but everyone needs to know we're on the same page. That's why he's meeting with them. For instance, a dad, a father can give his child instructions, tell him what to do, and he can know that what he's telling him is right. Well, let's say the mom doesn't hear the dad tell him that. And for whatever reason, the child goes to her and she contradicts what he says. For whatever reason, the message of the father then is what? This is anybody that's a dad with kids knows what happens. It's nullified or what he's trying to accomplish in the character of that child. It's either weakened or it becomes useless if the child decides to side with mom, right? So a father will do what? This is what I'll do if I can. They'll let the mom know what he's decided and why he's decided it. He'll share the gospel. Not so he can get her approval necessarily, but so they're on the same page. And everything will work out. That's what happens. You need to have things on the same message. We can make application to that because 
When you have one message and somebody else has another message and you're trying to minister together, that is a problem. I'm not going to get into all the ways I've experienced this in different ways going to preach to where, you know, I'm standing up to preach on evangelism and the group, Caleb was there, the group that comes before me is, I'm thinking, they're going to hate me because what I'm saying is nothing like what these people are saying. And (laughs) I know what I'm going to say and I'm not smart enough to change my notes at this point. And they did hate me, didn't they, Caleb? Yeah. I, was, I felt bad for him because I thought, I'm getting out of Dodge when I'm done here. But Caleb's got to live with these people for four years. <laughs> Paul and I, when we go, I go into prison cell to cell to cell to cell and just basically just preaching. I didn't get into tongues and healing and all that generally, not to begin with. I'm just telling them, this is the law. You're a sinner. You need to repent. Give your life to Jesus and you know, tell them the simple gospel message. I had time after time, people would look at me and say, I've never heard anything like that before. One guy said, that's an alien gospel you're preaching, a false gospel. Excuse me of that. I'm like, what? Because they're hearing all these other guys come through and say, look, just please, they're just all they're wanting is a prayer and do the best you can. And all that. they're not telling them they got to give up their sin or whatever else. They want a notch in their belt. And that just gets to be a problem. You know, this whole God loves you and, and his grace is sufficient. Well, yeah, God does love us and his grace is sufficient, but not in the way they mean it. Right? Sometimes I meet guys that in talking, I'd realize, you know, I really believe in talking to this person. I really think they're born again. They're struggling with sin or they're struggling. A lot of times it would be pornography. And I'd say, hey, what you need is the power of the Holy Spirit to give you power over sin. And the evidence of that will be speaking in tongues. And I'd take the time to go through all the scriptures with them. And, you know, next thing you know, somebody else comes behind or another inmate of all people. They'll listen to him above (laughs) somebody coming in there and tell them, no, 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 no. You get the Holy Spirit automatically when you're saved. Don't listen to that guy. You don't need to do all that. It's like, what can you say? All I know is I know this much. That when a person is thirsty, they will do whatever they have to to drink. Now, I don't think there's a lot of thirst in the land anymore. I'll tell you, when I heard about the Holy Spirit, I was thirsty. I tried to live Christianity, felt like I was totally powerless. Now, I didn't know anything about that. I just, like I said, I wanted to get saved. And this black pastor I was telling you about, he says, now what you need is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It'll give you power over sin. I'm like, man, I don't know. I need that. And he's like, well, and here the evidence is speaking in tongues. I'm like, I don't want to do that. And the Lord's like, okay, well, if you are embarrassed to do this in front of your sister, his wife, and this guy here, three people, that was a crowd to me. That was a huge crowd. And he's, you're not not willing to do that, then forget it. You're not going to get it. I'm like, I want it. I'll do it. Okay. It's just the way it came to me. I'll just say I've heard the argument that we as a group make Christianity two-tier Christianity, that there are those of us with the baptism, and then there's this other tier down here that doesn't have the baptism. And we up here sit on our tier and look down on those people that don't have the baptism. And I'm like, okay, so, and that we will say, being unspiritual as we are, that someone that's this great missionary, if he had the baptism, well, what could he have done with the baptism? And here we are eating a donut saying that. And I'm like, okay, well, let me just tell you, we got two arguments going on here. If you're telling me a spirit-filled person can maybe not be as spiritual as they should be, I would say I agree with that because look at the book of Revelations. He's writing to seven spirit-filled churches and only two of them escape a major rebuke. Well, that's one argument. But if you're going to make the argument that it's not important for people to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues when they're saved, you have to look at the book of Acts and just throw it away. Because every time the apostles find a group of people that have professed faith in Jesus Christ, it's like, have you received the Holy Spirit then? And if they hadn't, oh, we're going to get that taken care of right now. So your argument to me then is with Luke, the writer of Acts, and the Holy Spirit who inspired the book of Acts, and God himself who inspired these guys to say it's a big deal. That's why he died. So that he could pour out the Holy Spirit on our lives and we'd have power over sin and everything else that goes with it. And we're going to act like that, you know, we're supposed to feel bad because we see that and haven't experienced it. I don't look down on other people or I don't say you're not saved or you're a lesser of a Christian. I heard that at the seminary even. I, I don't look at things like that. But, but for me to say this will really help you out, it's really helped me out. I mean, that's the way I look at it. It's given me power over sin and praise God for it. 
So got that little aside in there. He brings his Gentile convert in here, chapter 2, presents them before the apostles. And here's the question. Are they going to demand that he be circumcised or are they going to receive him as he is a brother? That's really the question, isn't it? This is the first time in chapter 2 here, this is the first time in this letter that circumcision has been brought up. And why is that a big deal? So it was a big deal because according to the Old Testament, and if you read Genesis 17, it sounds like if, if you're reading the Old Testament and that is your scripture, just read it on face value. It sounds like if you're one of God's children, that is the everlasting covenant sign that you're his is to be circumcised. Now we're talking Abraham in Genesis 17. This is before Moses. And so these Jews, they know the scriptures and it's hard for us to forget the, the whole church practically, if not the whole church, that began in Jerusalem where it began. Every one of those people were circumcised. They'd been raised as little kids brainwashed from their youth that this is what has to happen to be part of God's people. And if you're not, you're out. So that's their mentality. And someone's coming along and saying, you don't have to do that, and you're part of God's people. That's not something that's going to be easy for them to take. I mean, when David hears about Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, this is his reaction when Goliath's out there spewing out whatever he was saying. He's saying, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In other words, God's army, God's people, God's warriors, we're all circumcised. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine out here? And that's the Jewish way of thinking. In their mindset, the uncircumcised were opposed to God and his people. And David says it again. He's brought before Saul. And Saul's like, man, you don't have a chance, David. How are you going to beat this guy? And David says, your servant has killed both lion and bear. And again, he says, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. And so you got to think, here is Paul. He's bringing this uncircumcised Titus before the elders in Jerusalem. He's saying, and this man here, he is one of God's children. And I'm sure that's something that they had to wrestle with because they're not dealing with uncircumcised Christians up to this point, right? No. So what was the result? Look what he says in verse 3. He says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled He's talking about by the apostles. He wasn't compelled to be circumcised. So what we have then is these Jerusalem apostles, Peter, James, and John, they hear Paul's message and decide, nope, this guy doesn't need to be circumcised because they clearly saw that both Jews and Greeks were accepted by God on the same terms. And what was the terms? Faith in Jesus Christ alone. Through the free grace of God, nothing else was needed for a person to be saved. Don't have to keep the ceremonial law. Not for the Gentiles. But it wasn't without a fight, though, was it? Because here's the Judaizers. He says these false brethren, he calls them false brethren. They're not just mistaken. They're false brethren. They sneak into this meeting that we're having. He basically saying they're gate crashers. They crashed our party, uninvited guests to this private meeting. And he says they wanted to spy out our liberty. They want to insist that Titus has to be circumcised. And Paul, he is a circumcised Jew. But he said if they got their way, he'd be bringing him by circumcising him into bondage, into slavery. He doesn't mince words. So he says, you all are bringing in a false gospel. You're false brethren bringing in a false gospel, and you're trying to bring people into bondage. You're in bondage still, and you're trying to bring others in there with it. So look what he says in verse 5. He says this, when they came in there, that they might bring us into bondage, verse 5, to whom we didn't yield submission to what they were trying to do, even for an hour. That's the shortest time increment they could give. He said, and basically not a second, not a minute. Not even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So here's the bottom line it wasn't the circumcision in and of itself that was the problem. Because we all know Timothy, he had Timothy circumcised, didn't he? So was it the fact that someone could be circumcised? Was that the problem in and of itself? Here's the deal Timothy had a Jewish mother. 
he would have been considered Jewish. And Paul didn't want any of the Jews that he's evangelizing to stumble over the fact that here's Timothy, a Jew, not circumcised. Okay, so he's just getting rid of a stumbling block, but he's not making that a condition for his salvation. So for Paul, it's like he says it, you know, circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. That in and of itself, that's not the problem. But if anyone says you have to be circumcised, to have acceptance with God. If you have to do that, I'm not putting up with that for a minute. Because that's adding works to something that the works don't add anything to. The free grace of God. He's saying that is death, that is bondage. And he's saying salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it. And here's what we have to guard ourselves against, all of us do, that we don't present our works as the basis for our right standing with God. We all tend to do that, right? We give, we love, we read our Bibles, we fast. We said a prayer one day asking the Lord into our hearts. We're not like other people. We're not liars, thieves, drunkards. We don't go to R-rated movies. We don't celebrate Christmas. We don't believe in divorce, and we don't take aspirin, right? I'm going to tell you, none of that stuff, you can do all of that or not do it, whichever way it is, and none of that stuff makes us righteous before God. Because we could literally, I heard a man say this, you could pile up your good works from the earth to the moon, and none of that is going to get you into heaven. I mean, we sang the song. I'm glad Tom sang it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We had nothing to offer, nothing to bring, and even now we don't. So no matter how holy, I've said this before, but no matter how holy we ever are, that is never the basis that we're allowed into heaven. It's never the basis we're accepted before God. The Pharisee and the publican, Luke 18, it says the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, because God wouldn't hear in this prayer. But here's what he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Because this is what I do. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And Jesus says, that man wasn't justified. And I mean, outwardly, he was a pole, right? He's doing everything right, presenting all this stuff I do. I'm a righteous person. Trusting in his works, trusting in his obedience to the law. Because let me hasten to add what I'm not saying. Am I saying then, because this is what people are doing now, because they're saying, well, we're not under the law and all that other. So, you know, the law says you shall not get markings on your body. Well, that's the law. We're not under the law, so we can get tattoos. We can just disregard whatever or name your sin. So because that Pharisee is boasting about his fasting, his almsgiving, and that he's not unjust or an adulterer, and he's saying, that doesn't make you righteous before God. Does that mean it's okay for us not to fast? We don't have to because we're not under the law. We're not under bondage. And works don't get us into heaven. Is that what that's saying? Not if you read the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have to give. We don't have to fast. We can commit adultery. We can be unjust in our dealings because we're under grace. We're not under the law. Is, you know, is that really what people think? But I think sometimes they do. Well, we're free to do what we want. No, we're not free to do what we want. We'll get into that in Galatians big time. You'll realize we're not free to do what we want to. It's when you trust in those works as the basis for your right standing before God. When it comes before the Lord Jesus Christ, He is our only righteousness. He is our righteousness forever from beginning to end. His pure and holy life is counted to our account as we're united to Him. When you're united to him, you get his righteousness, you get his nature, he changes you, his power flows into you, but you're bringing nothing into that union. Nothing. And the song says, the double cure, rock of ages, this song, here's how it goes, this hymn, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath, it'll save you from hell, but also it will make you pure. That's what the cross says. The second verse says, could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no weakness know? In other words, you're so zealous, you're doing everything for the Lord you know to do. Fasting, praying, giving, helping everybody out, loving, evangelizing. He said, could my zeal 
No weakness, no. He says, these for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And it says, in my hand, no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Because we come to the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people, they come with their sins still in their hands. Their hands aren't empty. They're full of their sins. They're not willing to give those up and bow before the Lordship of Jesus. And how can you hold on to the cross when you've got all your sins still clutched in your hands? No, you've got to repent, leave those behind, and turn to Him. But because you left them behind, I didn't, your hands are empty then. There's no righteousness there. There's no works there. Nothing can we do. We've got to cling to the cross. That's what the song is saying. Simply to the cross I cling. And we insult the Lord anytime when we sit back and think about what we do. And he has got to be so pleased with me. He'll let me into heaven. (laughs) By his grace, if we do anything good, isn't it? Now, we are living to please the Lord. And he will be pleased with us when we do that. But we can't take any credit for it, can we? (laughs) Cast our crowns at his feet. It's always Jesus' blood and his Righteousness, And it's always the cross. And Paul gets into this in chapter 3, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He goes, what did you do to get that, to earn that, to work to get it? And everything comes by faith, by simple trust in the cross. And it all flows from the cross, doesn't it? And like we said, that's why Paul says, I glory in the cross. A person is given Jesus' righteousness to live a righteous life. That's 1 John 3. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteousness. But that righteousness that you're doing isn't earning you anything. It just demonstrates that you have a living union with the living Christ and that he lives in you. But he's saying if that's the case and that's what gets you into heaven, that union what gets you into heaven, that gives you your justification, your sanctification, your righteousness, your wisdom. Everything comes through the union. And when you're united to him... John is saying, the Bible is saying, it's impossible for you to live as a sinner. You can't. If you are, he says, you're of the devil. You're kidding yourself. Let no man deceive himself. That's what John says. So finishing these verses up here, how did that private meeting, he brings old Titus in there and meets privately with these guys. How does it end? And there's two things. So the apostles, first of all, say they don't see any need to change Paul's message at all. That's what he's telling these Galatians. Look in verse 6. Look in verse 6 of chapter 2 of Galatians. He says, But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something, look at what he says there at the end. He says, They added nothing to me. So he tells them back up in verse 2, This is the gospel which I preach, which I'm presently preaching. That's what I presented to these apostles. I presented that same gospel, the gospel I'm preaching today, the gospel I preached. 14 years ago, the gospel I preached to you, Galatians, they heard it and they didn't change a tittle. They didn't change it at all. And he's saying it's the same gospel I've been preaching all along. And he's saying, here's his problem with these people in Galatia. He's saying, my gospel's never changed. I presented it to them. They gave me the thumbs up. But you people, you are the ones. It's not me. I'm not leaving the true gospel. You are the ones, he's saying, old foolish Galatians. That are leaving the gospel. The gospel message from this church hasn't changed, as far as I know, for 30 some years. But have we changed? The message hadn't changed because the Bible hadn't changed. And I don't feel like I have anything I got to apologize about. I'm not saying I'm perfect or everything I've said has been 100%, but I'm saying the basic gospel message that I've heard and sat, the reason I'm here. And believe and preach. I don't feel like I have to apologize for it. Not because of me, but because it's in the New Testament. And that's the source. That's the authority, isn't it? And the other thing that happens here after that meeting is they gave it the J.A. seal of approval. What's the J.A.? The Jerusalem Apostles. Seal of approval. That's down in verse 9. Look down in verse 9. Look what it says. And when James, Cephas, and John seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they recognized that God's hand was on Paul. All the things that happened, the conversions, the miracles, 
the hand was on him and his message. God's grace was being poured out through Paul to others, to these cities and these churches that he's planning. And they shook hands. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. Shook hands. And that's like two business partners saying, we're going our separate ways, but we have an agreement here. We agree with each other. We're in full agreement, full accord. And that's what they did. That's what Paul's saying. And then the last thing they said, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. And he's like, I've been doing it. That's what I'm here. I'm bringing the money. And they're saying, you know, these people here in Jerusalem, you know, later, I think it was Paul that said, you know, they minister to you their godly things. This isn't anything that you give them your carnal things. They're just saying, hey, we're going to need help here in Jerusalem. These poor people need help. And Paul said, I'm eager to do that. And they took collections up. It's in Corinthians. He's looking out for him. He says, that's no problem. So to tie this up, you know, Paul, as I said, he was a loving man. He really was a meek man willing to be all things to all men whenever he could. He's the one that told us as much as lieth in you, be at peace with all men. But when it came to the truth of the gospel, he wouldn't budge and he would fight back. He's not going to just sit back and he would do that. He didn't care if he stood alone. Because he did stand alone, didn't he? At the end of his life, end of his life, the old man, all his friends forsook him. <laughs> but I'll tell you, one person that didn't forsake me is the Lord Jesus Christ. He stood by me and encouraged me. And we'll need to be like that in these last days, I'm telling you. We're going to need to hold on to the truth of the gospel that we've received, whether anybody stands with us or not. Because there's going to be a lot of people fighting against us. They're not fighting so much now, but it's coming our way. It's not far off, in my opinion, but just my opinion on that. Let me close with this, because I think our attitude needs to be the attitude of good old Martin Luther. And he had to stand against a lot of people that wanted to have his head. He didn't back off a bit. And here's what he said. He said, let this be then the conclusion of the matter, that we will allow our goods to be taken away, our name, our life, and all that we have. But the gospel, our faith, Jesus Christ, we will never allow to be wrested from us. And cursed be that humility which here abases and submits itself. And this person is acting like they're so humble that they're going to give in to somebody trying to take away their Lord, their faith, what they believe. That's cursed humility, he says. He goes on to say, wherefore God assisting me, my forehead shall be more hard than all men's foreheads. And here I take upon me this title, according to the proverb, I give place to none. He said, yeah, I am glad even with all my heart in this point to seem rebellious and obstinate. And here I confess that I am and ever will be stout and stern and will not give place one inch to any creature. Love gives place for it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endure all things. He says, but faith gives no place. The last thing he said was, now is concerning faith, he means the Christian faith, the gospel, we ought to be invincible and more hard it might be than the adamant stone. But as touching love, we ought to be soft and more flexible than the reed or leaf that is shaken with the wind and ready to yield everything. And that's the way Luther was. He didn't compromise, not when it came to the gospel, but he was a very loving, giving man. He was. So Paul the title of the message, he was willing to stand for the gospel. Are you and I? That's the question. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for the truth of your word and, and this revelation that you've given us, Lord, and this gospel message that you've blessed us with here through your grace and love. And I just ask that we can see it as that, Lord. And even the trials we have to go through, Lord, that we can rejoice in them knowing that you're just using those to bring us to perfection. So we thank you, Lord, for also the apostles and the ministry and the word that came through them, that this word we have can give us a revelation of who you are and what truth is. And we're just so thankful for that. I ask that you'll give us all hearts to hold fast to this word that we've been given and not to let it go, not to let it be stolen, stolen from us. And I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.